The following is a conversation between Brad Smith, Chief Executive Officer of Candid, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Candid, the entity that resulted from the merger of the Foundation Center and GuideStar, gets you the information you need to do good. And there has never been a time where good has been so desperately needed. And here to discuss the good that has been happening in the philanthropic sector during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's a pleasure to have with us Brad Smith, the CEO of Candid. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Brad. Uh, thank you, Denver. It's great to be here. Candid has done a very comprehensive, a very thorough job in tracking philanthropy's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What's your assessment of that response thus far? Well, as you said, we've been tracking the, the philanthropic response because that's what we do. We, we essentially track the money that foundations are providing to nonprofits and society at large. And we also, since joining forces, Foundation Center and GuideStar, we have very large databases that track the activities of nonprofit organizations and help donors make uh, better choices about how to allocate their resources, whether they be individual donors or institutional donors. So <clears throat> when the coronavirus crisis first hit and it became obvious to us that it was going to be a lot more serious and, than anyone thought and not just something that was reserved to, you know, a country halfway around the world, China, we, we decided what could we do quickly that would help inform the, the philanthropic community about what's going on. So we very essentially overnight put up a, a pop-up website that anyone can see if they go to candid.org slash coronavirus. What that site has is essentially real-time information about new funds that are being announced by foundations, governments, other donors, requests for proposals, which are incredibly important for struggling nonprofits that they can figure out how to apply to these funds. It actually does track the giving. So we know the dollar amounts, who's giving it, who's getting it. It maps it around the world. So you can actually go around and see it in different uh, countries. And then it has a steady stream of news, philanthropic news and a little more general news about that we feel that could be useful to donors. The innovation in this is that, you know, for anybody who knows GuideStar and the Foundation Center, the two organizations that went into creating Candid, a lot of the information of those two organizations was based on 990 tax returns. Mm -hmm. um, this is essentially real-time information. This is information that is being pulled from various sources almost as fast as it comes, as it appears. In terms of trends we're seeing, the philanthropic community is stepping up in a very impressive way. There's a lot of COVID-19 funds being announced. So I think one thing to look at is special funds. The second thing to look at, and we can talk about these at more length, is what will happen to levels of giving. And the third is the nature of philanthropic giving. So glad to talk about any of those three in any order you'd like. Yeah, well, let's start talking with the foundations. I mean, are they beginning to show some flexibility in terms of the way they operate. It's certainly not business as usual and offering that kind of support to grantees and communities that are needed in real time. Well, you know, it's hard to talk about counting our blessings in a crisis like this, but you know, imagine if this crisis had hit 20 or 30 years ago when few people or nobody actually had the capacity to work remotely. Mm -hmm. So most foundations, especially the larger, you know, well-staffed ones, 
are, are pretty much able to function as usual because so much of their stuff is online and in the cloud. So they've had to make adjustments like we all had. They had to scramble over a two-week period to shut down their offices, but they're continuing to function. Some of the smaller foundations that still rely a lot on paper, it's a lot more challenging for them. But, but by and large, foundations are able to operate. Now, the second thing we're seeing is, I think because of experience with previous crises and the existence of organizations like the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, which organizes a lot of information on disasters, in order to improve the philanthropic response. Foundations um, are much quicker to use the toolkit they develop from other disasters. One of the best tools in that is to get in touch with all the grantees that are currently being supported by the foundation, finding out what their situation is, and then telling them that, you know, if, even if we have a restricted grant, if we've given you a grant that has restrictions, is tied to specific outcomes and whatnot, we're willing to convert that to a general support grant to help you survive this crisis. Fantastic. That is a tool. That's a toolkit that was developed in things like the tsunami when no one could get to the communities where the victims resided and foundations began to think, well, if we already have grants with organizations that are in these communities, if there's a way to get in touch with them, tell them, look, don't worry about the restrictions we placed on your grant and your theory of change and your logic matrix and all that stuff. Just do what you need to help people and keep your organization functioning. So I see that a lot more and I think that's very welcome. I mean, in our own case, we've gotten lots of letters from foundations saying, you know, if it would help you, we'd be glad to convert your grant to a, a general operating support grant. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, that really is. And I think even just hearing from them is some reassurance that I think a lot of nonprofits could use at the moment. Yeah, very much so. I think in terms of the special funds, one of the things I've really liked to see is, you know, I remember this reminds me quite a bit, although it's different, but of the 2008-2009 financial crash. I remember I had just walked in the door of the then Foundation Center, October 1, 2008, two weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed. <laughs> and the first thing that happened was I got a phone call that said, you know, from Reuters, I think it was, what is the foundation sector going to do about the financial crisis. And I remember literally putting down the phone, walking over to the research folks and saying, quick, you know, I need a, I need a statistic. And I came back and said, look, if you look at the scale of the bailout package, which was a mere $600 billion then, if you can remember, you know, the total philanthropic giving is something, you know, it's just a few percent compared to that. Now we're looking at $2 trillion that the government is signed, that's mm -hmm. the US government, probably another package coming. And you know, we know that philanthropic uh, assets uh, are around you know, over a trillion dollars now, but you know, giving is around 90, uh, $90 billion a year. So foundations can't do the mainstream work needed to combat the crisis. What they can do is fund innovation. So we're seeing some of that, some things mm -hmm. that are entering into the health and research area. They can help nonprofits survive. The average nonprofit has less than three, three months of cash reserves. Right. Um, they have to be payroll, have to pay their rent. And something I'm seeing, which I'm finding incredibly inspiring, is sort of what I would call niche funding. There's quite a few funds being created for artists and individual musicians, you know, individual painters, sculptors, small arts organizations 
And these are often left out of a crisis response. And that's Absolutely. a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely. Well, let's pick up on that uh, financial crisis, because as you alluded to, we're not just battling a disease, but we will be in the midst of an historic economic meltdown. What is that going to mean to the social sector, Brad? Yeah, that is a longer question. And I think this really is a, a perfect storm. We have a pandemic combined with an economic collapse. It's very hard to predict exactly what will happen. I mean, it's always hard to predict, but the, what we're all wrestling with is the, the market collapse was so fast um, that there's very little data out there to see what the impact is. It's too early mm -hmm. to say what the impact is on giving. Our organization, which has earned income as well as grant income, it's too early to tell what the impact is. We assume it, it will be negative, but, but we just don't know. So the longer it goes on, the more we'll know. We did, as candid, we looked back at a studies we had done in past recessions in terms of what had happened in foundation giving, and then published that as a blog, essentially, that on the candid.org blog that sort of tried to give an idea to people of what might happen with the economic part of this crisis based on what had happened in the past. Mm -hmm. um, in all the past recessions, we found there's sort of a chicken little syndrome. You know, the sky is falling. We're going to lose all our foundation support. Well, first, we need to look at the fact that foundation support is about 17% overall of nonprofit budgets. But it's an important part because it's very flexible. Yeah. In, in past recessions, what had happened is that uh, foundation spending, the grant spending, had declined during the recession years, but at a slower rate than the decline of the assets. And conversely, when the assets began to recover as the markets picked up again, the giving rose, but at a slower rate than the market appreciation. So why? That has to do with the way that many foundations calculate payout. They're supposed to spend 5% of their assets on their charitable activities. And most of them do that on a rolling uh, three to five year average of their asset value. Foundations assets have risen tremendously in the recent years because of the incredible bull market we've been in. Mm -hmm. So if you really average, you take you know, 2019, 2018, 2017, and you calculate your 5% based on that, it's not gonna be 30% lower, which is you know, the current market decline. And that's the genius of payout. It tends to smooth it out. Um, yeah. The second thing we've seen is that um, foundations in past recessions have gone above the 5% of their payout required. Um, they have, have reached and dug deeper in recognition of the need that their nonprofit partners have. We've seen foundations that have spent 7 or 8% of their asset values as opposed to the, the minimum required 5%. And the third thing we've seen in economic recessions is that the front lines of the foundation world are the community foundations. Mm -hmm. They step up and they step up in a big way. They dig deep, but they also take a big hit because they dig deep. And of course, they don't have most of them, the endowments that the big you know, Rockefellers, Fords and Gates have, they really depend on a lot of donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I was wondering what foundations could do in the aftermath of this, because the way I kind of think about it is that these nonprofits are going to need some bridge financing for maybe two to five years to get through this real rough period. And are things that foundations can do, perhaps like using their endowments as collateral for grantees to help them maybe get through this tough period? Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's interesting. During the 2008-2009 crisis, the best performing asset class for foundations were program-related investments, mm-hmm. which, yeah. as a lot right. of your listeners may know, were, are essentially, it's a mechanism that allows a foundation to take part of its endowment and make uh, interest-free or very low-interest loans to nonprofits for some kind of repayment over time. And while all the big banks and everybody was being bailed out by the federal government, I guess this time it's probably the airline companies, mm-hmm. um, nonprofits were actually paying back their loans. So foundations began to realize that you know, loaning money to nonprofits actually could be not only a good thing to do for the nonprofits, but a good financial strategy as a hedge against bad markets. So Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So there are programs <laughs> in investment is one way that can help. Guarantees, yes. It would take a lot of systematic thinking. Foundations have used their assets as guarantees in a lot of situations. The, the whole, the, you know, some of the bailout of the public pension system in the city of Detroit was achieved by foundations using their assets as guarantees to, for, to bring in much larger capital from other sources. So I think that, that's a real possibility, yes. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you um, a personal question in terms of leadership. I mean, this is a, a tough situation in terms of, of, of your position in a crisis, having to lead an organization at this time. Tell us a little bit about how you've thought about it, the behavior you've modeled, uh, the things that you're doing to get your team through this unprecedented disruption. Right. Thanks for that. It's, it's, it's very tough. I've led organizations or been in leadership groups through a number of crises, uh, through 9-11, through the, the 2008-2009 recession. This one is different, as we've been talking about, because it does... It does combine the pandemic with an economic, what, what looks to be a, a global economic recession. And of course, it is global in, in a very unique way. I think like all leaders, you know, I went through the, the difficult phase of first of trying to decide whether to, to keep the offices, we have multiple offices around the country, a big one in New York, whether to keep them open or whether to close them. Mm-hmm. We went through a voluntary work-at-home phase, which you know, a week later, we essentially moved to a mandatory work-at-home. Right. And then we went through the process of closing all our offices. We had to make sure everyone had you know, laptops and remote connectivity to be able to work. Fortunately, we had moved everything to the cloud, 99.9% of everything we do and had, because we already had a lot, we had multiple offices and remote people. We were quite used to doing Zoom and Slack and all sorts of you know, technology communication tools. And I've been surprised with the resilience of the staff. I mean, people have invented things like Zoom happy hours, <laughs> where every, everybody just logs in at a certain time and gets their favorite drink and they're all on Zoom. We have oh, cool. you know, water cooler chats and things like that. But you know, getting back to the more serious part of it, I think the hardest thing is 
for leaders at any level in the organization to balance your own personal anxiety over something like this with the need to be there and lead and set an example and help your colleagues. And this is also because we're working at home at the same time we're trying to help our families and do homeschooling and lots of other things. So it's required working in a different way, being much more flexible about hours, people's personal situations, you know, work family balance. But I think this has the potential to fundamentally shift for a lot of us how we think about institutions and how we think about work. And Speak about, a little about, bit more about that. I'd be interested in your perspective. Well, you know, already, I mean, there's, you know, the future of work is sort of a buzz term. But, you know, I think we were already beginning to ask ourselves about wh what are the, the virtues and the defects of physical locations, for example. You know, any nonprofit, the, the two biggest cost items you have are salaries and benefits. Mm -hmm. and then essentially rent, physical, you know, what's called occupancy on the 990. Now, the way you negotiate, the way you control the, those, you know, occupancy expenses is you negotiate long-term leases. So you have 10, 15-year leases. I think coming out of this, a lot of people are going to look at, well, do we want to get into leases like that? How much of a physical location do we need? There already are entirely virtual organizations in the space. And how much of our work can we do remotely and how much of it do we actually need a physical presence for? Yeah. So I think that's going to be a, a big question going forward. I also think it may have impact on how we see benefits, hours, flex time. And, and there's nothing that's going on, of course, is there's a lot of emergency benefits being created by state and federal government around paid sick leave and things like that. Once benefits are created, they're kind of hard to uncreate. That's correct. So the cost structure of nonprofits could change. Now, on the flip side of this, I know in looking at our own finances, we're expecting to take a hit on revenue just because, you know, people are busy taking care of themselves and may not have as much time to be subscribing to databases and things like that. But we're sure as heck saving a lot of money on our travel budget. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. Let me close with this, Brad. Uh, you guys have done a fantastic job in adapting and making information available online, much of it for free to help people get through this. Share with us what you have there, what people can access. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a good place to go is candid.org backslash coronavirus. That's probably the biggest the, the quickest nonstop thing you can go to. Also, we have something called a funding information network, which mm -hmm. consists of uh, some 400 public libraries, community foundations, and other types of community-based organizations around the country. Those traditionally have carried free access to the databases of Candid at a physical location. Well, physical location ain't what it used to be, right? So yeah. we have now on a provisional basis for some period of time, made it possible for many of those centers to provide remote access to their users, basically through their library card. So a lot of people are getting free access to the databases like that. If you go to guidestar.org, which Guidestar is 
which is sort of the nonprofit lookup database. Yeah. Um, you can, we've expanded the number of free searches you can do on that before, you know, we begin to ask you if you'd like to subscribe. So people will have, be able to do um, more searches. But the coronavirus site, the Canada.org backslash coronavirus, has a lot of really great information. And I, I really want to stress that that's being updated daily. So we're getting a new RFPs, request for proposals, new funds, new grants. We've tracked $3 billion of coronavirus spending so far. And that's not just uh, in the U.S. A lot of that is in China, their own philanthropic sector stepping up. It's in Italy, Australia, but a lot of it is right here in the U.S. and right in the communities your listeners come from. Well, I can uh, testify that it's updated daily. I go to it every day and there's something different there. And I also led a lot of your in-person workshops. You've moved to a virtual format, so you have been incredibly right. responsive and incredibly generous. Well, thanks, Brad. It is it's always so great to have you on the program, particularly in these times. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be here and sharing this information with us. Stay well. Well, thank you so much. You stay well, too. And all to all your listeners, too. Be safe.